You're listening to I Fucking Love This Record, a music podcast hosted by me, the Derek Care of You. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, I spoke to the mountains so you could listen to the sea and us as we discuss Nothing Shocking, the first major label studio album by Jane's Addiction. It was released on August 23rd, 1988 through Warner Brothers Records and was produced by J- Dave Jordan. It peaked at number 103 on the Billboard 200. The single, Jane Says, reached number six on the Billboard Modern Rocks tracks in 1988. On the other mic today, my guest was made with a heart of stone, and he's on the other side of the ocean size. He is someone I have known since junior high, and he has had the exact same haircut for just about as long. Welcome to the show, TJ Moore. TJ, how you doing, my friend? Pretty good. How are you doing today? Uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't know when this is going to run, but today is, uh, uh, you know, the day after election day. So it's been, uh, it's been an ordeal. I'm sure being so far away, I get to miss most of it, but yeah, it hasn't, it hasn't been fantastic. Other than that, things are okay. How about you? For this being day one of figure it all out for the rest of our lives, it's been pretty interesting over here in, uh, in the States. I would imagine. So it's, uh, let's, let's not do the politics thing here. We're just going to, we're talking music. We're having a good time. Uh, so tell me, TJ, how did this album enter your life? So this is like, like 1990 for me. I, I know it came out two years before that, but I think 89, 90. And of course the guy, the great Steve Pettit came into my life again, like he did with most of us being the guru of music for our clique. And uh, he had this album. This is pretty much the album that saved me from a lifetime of classic rock oldies on local radio stations. I kind of opened my eyes to a bunch of different things. And it, it was basically the soundtrack for, for my senior year of high school, first year of college, and, and pretty much eh, the first couple of years of my life of, as an adult rocker, so to speak. Yeah, I have basically the exact same story. Uh, so Steve, and I, this is one of those, I remember very specifically the whole thing. So Steve and I had um, a class together, uh, which was graphic arts, where generally instead of going to do graphic arts, we would just sit in the classroom and make each other laugh. And we both did not do very well in that class because we weren't doing the work, but that's a different story for a different time. And so obviously we talked to, we talked about comedy, we talked about shows and we talked a lot about music. And I was really, I was still full on into heavy metal at this point. And he had picked this up, thought I may like it. And he made a tape for me. And so he gives it to me and it's just before Christmas break. So let's say uh, 89 going into 90. So he gives me this, I kind of half-assedly listen to it one time and I bring it back and I'm like, eh, it wasn't that good. He then immediately hands it back to me and says, now go and listen to it for real this time. And I was like, all right. So he called my bluff. And so I took it back home. I actually sat down and listened to it. And then it was like, you know, that was uh, like you. I think it saved me from a life of just listening to stale heavy metal. So it was one of three albums that I really considered to be life-changing and that it changed the direction of what I was listening to. So it was this, uh, Faith No More is the real thing and Ministries of Mind is a terrible thing to taste because all three of those were heavy without actually being metal. And so that's what got me to explore. So it wasn't like doing a 180. It was, you know, it was doing like a a 60 or something, (laughs) you know, just slowly shifting things away. And this is one that's really stayed in my life for for a long time. But like you said, soundtrack of uh, the second part of senior year, summer in between, and then freshman year of college. So for me, this album, even though I first heard it in the winter, and a lot of times when I first hear an album, it sort of sticks with me in that season. This is a summer record for me. And we'll see that, I think, also from just some of the topics of the songs. So let's go ahead and get started here in our track-by-track analysis. We have side one, song one, Up the Beach. 
this is a, an interesting way to start off this record because it's it's not exactly an instrumental. There is some, well, you know, and there's not a full set of lyrics either. So there's a lot of this kind of vocalization because one of the things that Perry Farrell was able to do was to mimic a lot of different woodwinds. He could sound like a flute and he could sound like something else that I can't remember right now. So he does some of that and he does a little bit of just kind of make a noise. And I think the only thing you really hear is him saying home towards the end. But this mainly feels more like an instrumental, even though there is just that little bit of vocalization. And, you know, right from the get-go, you see how important Eric Avery's bass is to this album. And I know he was a, one of the primary songwriters. I think he and Perry pretty much wrote all the music they were the beginnings of this band, let's say. And the sound of his bass is really important to the record. Everything comes crashing and swirling it in. And it really just invites you into this record in, in pretty terrific fashion. So it's a little bit of a teaser. It's not exactly like the rest of the album, but it's also a little bit of a blueprint because I feel like it's showing you what you're going to get. Somewhere in the middle of those two, but it's, I think, a, a great song. And what are your thoughts here, TJ? Oh, I absolutely agree on, on it. Oh, the blueprint part, it, it seems almost like it was like, Belong in somebody's experimental album. They got put onto a more of a, of a public uh, consumption type thing. Absolutely, absolutely love it. Kind of surprised that it's not in the middle of the album because as we're going to talk about in a minute, Ocean Size has that eclectic rocker sound to it that just kind of like grabs you immediately for the introduction. Okay, yeah. So let's go ahead and move on to track two, Ocean Size. And what are your thoughts on this one, T? I just, I just, before my favorite songs on the actual album and the lead up is there's, there, there are so many albums out there that have one or two really fantastic songs or intros that you hear for your entire life. Like the pusher from Steppenwolf, that intro to the pusher, whenever you hear it, you're like, oh, here we go on a ride right now. And Oceanside says like that same kind of feel to it. Like you hear it and you go, you know, you're firing up the 1969 Mustang, which is falling apart, grabbing a beer and just howling down, you know, the road with it just because you've got this soundtrack of your life type sound is, is it has just rocks you out. Yeah, like it has that acoustic beginning. Once again, Perry Farrell doing that thing where he sounds a little bit like a flute. Uh, so he's sort of making mouth noises over the beginning. That sounds pretty good. And then that opening guitar. And then that's like there's that three, four, and then it all comes crashing in together, right? One of the bands that this band got compared to quite a bit in the early days was Led Zeppelin. And now there's nothing, I think, that sounds sonically like Led Zeppelin. Like, I don't think uh, Dave Navarro's guitar sounds like Jimmy Page. This one reminds like he's like spiritually like Led Zeppelin with that acoustic beginning and then everything coming in together. And then just this one rages and it's fucking great. It, so whereas, you know, Up the Beach is that introduction. This, I feel like, is the first quote unquote real song uh, that just rages out at you. Like I said, it's like spiritually and stylistically, I can see where the, those Zeppelin comparisons came in, even though I don't think, you know, Perry Fell doesn't sound anything like Robert Plant, doesn't try to ape his his vocalizations. There's none of it where I, I just think that they they take that blueprint Zeppelin used for some of their tracks and applied it here in Ocean Size. Henry Rollins tells a story where he's bouncing around his bedroom with a cape, the, the towel as a cape to Dio, to a Dio album. And I can just see like 12 or 13 year olds with that two, three, four, and just like going absolutely batshit crazy. 
when this thing fires up. <laughs> Such a great story. You can tell he's just been hammered flat by chicks. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> then brings us on to track three, Had a Dad. I just really love the drums on this one, just that drum and him shouting because, you know, everything else is kind of taking its time leading you in. And this one just comes right out, right out of the gate with those, you know, that Marshall style drums with him just kind of screaming it open. You know, I don't talk a whole lot about lyrics and some of the, we haven't had a ton of lyrics to really talk about to this point, but one of the things I like about this song lyrically is it does a little bit of a, of a fake out on you, you know, so he talks about had a dad right there in the title and, you know, there's, that whole thing about you know, successful rock stars, how many of them have dead moms and absent or unapproving fathers. And so this has, um, you know, almost like, you know, Everclear made an entire career out of complaining that his dad left, right? And so it starts off with that, you know, had a dad big and strong, you know, then my daddy's gone. And so, you know, that, and that's what made me the man I am today. And so there's some of that where, you know, all the, you know, the boy named Sue, right? So it's like, I wasn't going to be there and you had to grow up tough. And so it feels like the song is going to go in that direction. And then it doesn't really go in that direction. And that second verse, he kind of changes it up and it goes almost elemental with it, where he talks about the, the mountain, I went to the mountains, I went to the sea. And then in the third verse, he gets into God is dead. And so it goes all more into that spiritual range while all still leading back into this thought of his absentee father. But instead of just, you know, my daddy gave me a name and went away, it's uh, more about how he has just taken that all in, in this sort of elemental and spiritual manner, all while the song is just fucking rocking, you know? <laughs> you know, so there's no messing around with this one. What do you think here? Well, for every, for every Perry Farrell and, and Everclear song, there's Roger Waters in the background waiting for his turn at the mic when it comes to missing fathers. Just hold my beer for me, son. I got four, four decades worth of uh, pain to go on from that one. <laughs> I, I agree that musically, I don't know if they had a, they had a, they had a guest basis on had a dad like they did on uh, Idiot's Rule. It, it's, a, it's an amazing song. But, and again, it's, it's that Perry Farrell of, I'm going to nail you holistically with every freaking thought from the Tibetan mountains to DCF at the same time. He's wrapped up on a one huge song. Yeah, yeah. He has his, uh, his picadillos as a songwriter. But uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a fun one. Moving on to track four, Ted, Just Admit It. I got to admit for, for this song that I didn't realize who Ted was when I first listened to this the first couple of years, even I went to Florida State University, which was kind of a, had a kind of a nefarious past with Ted that we sure. speak of. And, and some of that might've actually been recorded near my city. Great song again. Love the, the backbeat to it. The percussion on it is just phenomenal. I mean, you could, I think you pretty much could put any lyrics to that beat for the, from whoever's playing the drums on that one. It's almost like a world beat type sound to it. They've changed it up so much from had a dad and ocean size 
to this like, wow, here's an entirely different track on the same album, Nut Job Serial Killer. But it couldn't have been about anything because it just, it flows so well musically. This is a, a phenomenal track and it's over seven minutes long. I'm with you where uh, initially I didn't realize he was talking about Ted Bundy. I thought it was like Ted Koppel <laughs> because it was about the news. Uh, was my first thought. And it took me a little bit. I'm sure I must have said something and Steve just gave me a disapproving look and told me who it was and walked away and didn't talk to me for two days or something like that. Stein. Yeah. Uh, so I just I love when you talk about with the drums, the drums are amazing on this track. And it just opens up with like that. It's like drums in space, like just the echo and the reverb or whatever it is that you do to drums that they just sound they're, they're like big and cavernous. And then that bass line comes and it's not fancy, but it's really just holding down the fort here. The fuzzy guitar, we haven't talked a whole lot about Dave Navarro, who is a hell of a guitar player. And he does some pretty good work on this record. It can be a little flashy, but it never feels overindulgent. Eric Avery is, I think, the unsung hero of this record, if not this entire band. And I think that's why I really I haven't cared about the band after the they reformed because Eric Avery didn't want to be a part of it. And I think he's just too elemental. Like even if you get Flea or whatever to join in, it's just it's not the same. And you can this is another place where you know those those drums going and this fuzzy guitar, mouth flute, Ted Bundy clip, but you know that baseline is just holding everything in place and making sure it's going forward. And you need that on a seven and a half minute long song. And so we get this Bundy clip and it's amazing to me listening to it now. And this is an album that's never really been out of rotation. So it's not stuck in a place for me. You know, sometimes when I do hear it, of course, I, I do think of that, you know, senior year or freshman year of college. But a lot of times it's just, this is a record I fucking love listening to. I still listen to it on a fairly regular basis. One of the things that surprised me when just, I think, looking a little bit closer is how 90s this song sounds. The news clip and, and the uh, some of the vocal effects. And even though this came out in 88, you can see what a big influence Jane's Addiction had on music in the 90s. You know, Nirvana really gets all of the credit, but I think this band is really... Jane's Addiction ushered in music in the 90s. That's what I, I feel, even though I don't think they released anything in the 90s I thought worth listening to for the most part. Well, of course, uh, Ritual Do Halo Bitchful came out in the 90s, so never mind that. But so I think, uh, you know, you can see everybody shines on this song. Everybody does what they do best and bringing it through. And it's such a powerful song lyrically when he's talking about just the, the manipulation of the news, just that hook of, you know, sex is violent, which was kind of, you know, something as a kid, you kind of chuckle at or whatever, you know, you get that prurient kind of feel about it, but how almost prescient this album or this song is specifically about just the, the manipulation of the news media. And of course, you know, we've always said sex sells. So, you know, sex being in, in media or advertising is not, isn't anything new and it isn't anything brilliant to be talking about, let's say, but I think it just comes across as not being preachy. It doesn't come across as being that they're above it all. It's just all these different things working in this really long song. And I, you know, there's another song that I generally say is my favorite, and we'll get to that later. I think this is the best song they've ever done. You already mentioned Ritual, and I, I would say that probably like Avery's work on Ritual with Three Days, it's about, again, a 10 minute, 29 second song, right? Yeah. It's absolutely phenomenal. And that is like my absolute, like, that is a song. Like when we were going over the, when I was going over the notes for this one, I put three days on again, just because I, I love the way that feels, how it grooves into that song straight through the baseline. 
that's exact, you know, that just carries you through the entire song and it builds and builds. It's, it's phenomenal. I'd yeah. argue that's the best song overall, but Ted's got so much going on with it. And, and you said that earlier that they didn't do a whole lot of great stuff in the nineties, but I would say that I'd argue in my amateur arguing that they pretty much set the stage for bands like tool, which came out a little bit later on and had that step up because they could, they could walk on the shoulders of whatever, how you want to say it of Jane's addiction kind of paved the way. Agreed on hundred percent. I think a lot of what was going on. So I think, Nirvana is what really helped break it all out. But I think this is the band that set a lot of things up. They, and they were just such a Los Angeles band too, which is kind of the weird part of it, that they had some influence on that metal scene that was going on at the time, while also obviously not being beholden to it. But I think this the fact that they had to compete with those bands on the Sunset Strip and they had to bring a good show. They had to bring the musicality to it. Also, while just being the, you know, totally freaking weird. If you listen to like early Marilyn Manson before Trent Reznor started to produce them, they sounded a lot like, you know, so I mean, before they were recording, so any of their stuff when they were still a local band, they were way closer to Jane's Addiction than they were to Nine Inch Nails, let's say for those first couple of years, their approach as well. So, I mean, you can, I think you can see this band's stamp on a lot of different bands. To carry over with that, if you think about what Lollapalooza did for everybody, I mean, whether or not Jane's Addiction was a great band or, or, or you know, stands the test of time, they exposed generations through Lollapalooza, lots of poor losers, whatever you want to call it, to some incredible acts. I and mean, we saw, I don't know if you were there with it, we saw Henry Rollins with Ice-T performing together. I mean, just phenomenal stuff. I would never would have seen Body Count if it hadn't been for going to see Jane's Addiction during a Lollapalooza tour. Yeah, I didn't get to see that first one. I went to the second one and just that whole, I think that's... That's so 90s, you know, that's the whole thing. So that first one was what I think in 91. Yeah, such such a touchstone for, you know, even, you know, the Simpsons were making shows about it. <laughs> yeah, a lot to be said about that. That's a hell of a rabbit hole for one song. Yeah, that's all right. I like that. Yeah, that's, that's what's fun about it. So we're going to move on to track five, Standing in the Shower, Thinking. Cannot stand this song myself. And I think I might have taken a little of your thunder on that one, but this is like, I, they couldn't find another song. They didn't want to do a cover of somebody else. So they threw this one together and threw it out. It almost seems like it's the bastard father of Stop. It's just another one of those songs where they just threw, you know, let's, let's just jam out as much as we can, get a, get a track down and put it on the album. Your, of course, experience may vary on that. It probably does. It doesn't. This is probably my least favorite full track on the, on the record. I like the song. It's fine. And I think it continues with some of that. I go back to this, you know, being a summer album that standing in the shower thinking has that, you know, when you're in school, that's when you have that time to just not do anything or go anywhere. And so this kind of has that, it continues that summary theme for me. I think, you know, you just, you follow up this seven minute long epic track This you know, really holds down this album. And what do you follow it up with? You know, and, and what do you end the side with if you're thinking of it on vinyl? This is where you can bury that, you know, maybe not great song. I think if you would have even flipped them, if you would have put standing in the shower thinking and then finished with the seven long minute epic before you flip it over, you know, would that have worked a little bit better? Maybe. And, you know, would it come 
after had a dad, maybe, you know, there's some, some things to think about with that. I like that each verse is a different thought and he's only brought back to reality because he's pissing on himself. Uh, it's goofy and juvenile, but eh, it's an okay song. That brings us to the end of side one of Nothing Shocking by Jane's Addiction on I Fucking Love This Record with my special guest, TJ Moore. TJ, it's been it's been a bit since we've been in the same place at the same time. So uh, you, I know you, you bought a you bought a new house. Where are you? Are you in are you in Deland? Are you in Deltona? Are you in I am. I, I'm, I'm in Deland. Nope. Deland in a 1923 house. Um, as you know, my kid and I just got back from a Fandango up to the, the West Coast of the United States and met a buddy of mine who used to be a guitarist for what later became the Crew Shadows, which are pretty popular up there in, uh, in Europe, as far as I can tell, still with Rogue and those guys. And we went out to Portland and saw some sights and did some things and headed up the coast and just kind of did a good road trip. That looked like a pretty cool time because you were posting some pictures up and that was that was fun to watch. And uh, I'm assuming that you hit a bunch of record stores along the way. Your son is into vinyl as well. Is that right? It, 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 he is. And we, we, uh, we got there and my, my buddy, John Gordon, an FSU guy who, who surprisingly, if you got time for a quick Steve Pettit story, Steve Pettit made me famous at Florida State my freshman year. Well, let's hear it. I don't know if this is actually a, like a bootleg tape or not, but gave me a bootleg tape of Ritual. And I went to college with it and showed up at the dorm with a cassette tape of Ritual. And this guy named Frank Frado, internet famous now, was part of our early crew there and thought I was an absolute god because I showed up with a bootleg of Ritual four days before it came out. So I became super popular for a couple of days with all the, the edgelord goth kids <laughs> and ended up meeting like pretty much all of my, my friends that I've had from college ever since over those days because of that of that one tape. So thank you, Steve Pettit, for changing me from being the WDIZ listener to a little bit more of, a, of an eclectic music aficionado. But my son, as we were doing our road trip, we had tons of different record stores around the area. And he got this and everything from like Gordon Lightfoot to the Zounds and everything in between, subhumans and all that. So I forced him to listen to these albums, The Ritual and also Nothing Shocking as we were driving. And he was just out of his mind, annoyed by this album, just could not stand it. So I think the part of, part of my, my love of this album is actually is the nostalgia, because I started to see some of his point when listening to some of these tracks. But again, this is the soundtrack of, of both of our youths. Yeah, without a doubt. So that's, uh, it, you know, it, it, it does hit those nostalgia centers on occasion. And I find there are records that are much heavier with that, just because I didn't carry them. And so you, I'll put something on uh, like a Queensryche record or something. And I haven't listened to Queensryche on a regular basis in a very long time. So when I put the, when I will drop the needle, because I picked up a couple of those on vinyl, uh, you, know, you know, 15, 20, 15, 20 years ago, and I dropped it and it's like, oh, yep, high school. That is fucking high school. Whereas this one, sometimes it does, I, I do remember that first part or I do remember freshman year, but I've listened to this one a lot, <laughs> you know, over the years. It's, it's going with me. Yeah, it's not perfect. I'm not always crazy about Perry Farrell's voice. It has its moments, but uh, the you know the bass playing and the guitar playing and the drum playing on this record is great. And I'm getting into more of my final thoughts. So let's go ahead and uh, flip this bad boy over. Side two, song six, Summertime Rolls.
What do you got for me? Uh, obviously, this is a, fan, a fantastic start to the, the second side of the album. It's kind of more of a lead-in, I would say. It doesn't hit you quite as hard as, say, Up to Beach or some of the other songs on the first side of the album. Really just like the way that it sounds. It's kind of, it reminds me of drunken crooning, if I may, with the way it's so, it's, it's so sing-songy and it kind of lilts through the whole thing. But uh, I think it's a great entry to the second side of the album. Sure. And it's got that languid bass to open up. It goes almost like a heartbeat, just the way it's like the up, down, up, down, up, down. And this is probably the slowest track. It seems like a, an odd choice to start side two. Now, I had mainly listened to this on CD or on cassette for a bit, but I think I mostly listened to this one on CD. And so I never really thought of this as song one side two until a couple of years ago when i when i did get it on vinyl like even with ted just admit it this one builds this album is rarely in a hurry there's a few of them like you know had a dad or maybe even standing in the shower thinking that they burst right at you but they don't mind taking their time and so this you know starting off side two with it is an interesting choice i'm not saying it's it's a bad choice it's an interesting choice i, I like the build up i like the song and again that feeling of you know that endless summer how how long summer seems to last when you're a kid. Not every song hits hits it, but there's a lot of songs here that just hit that summer feel for me in tone as as well as in content. When you when you talk about how these this song and a lot of the songs build and it's kind of taking their time. I sometimes wonder if Perry Farrell wasn't planning like this is my stairway to heaven. This is my this next song's my stairway to heaven. Keeps trying to build that that epic rock ballad that kind of builds and builds, but never quite got there. He never 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 quite pulled it off. I can see that. That would be uh it sounds like something he would try to do. And this doesn't come close to that, though. It, and it has that kind of hippie-ish-ness to it with the, you know, me and my girlfriend don't wear no shoes or we don't wear no clothes. And it's weird how sometimes they're like kind of dirty and heavy and other times they're just, you know, hippie and dippy. He's an odd dude. And I think that's really what makes a lot of this record work. So even if I don't necessarily like his voice, I think he's a hell of a front man, if nothing else. Absolutely. He is definitely a carnival marker. I mean, I would, I would really agree with that. And I think sometimes like the hippy dippy stuff that you just said kind of gets in the way, like mountain song, ocean size, and all. When they're just like, "Hey, we're here to jam and not just push the image," they're just they're phenomenal. Oh, agreed. So let's go ahead and move on to track seven, mountain song. opening baseline on this song is like the greatest 17 seconds of music ever I, or however long it is i fucking love this baseline if asked i usually say mountain song is my favorite song on the record even though again having doing this research ted just admitted, may have edged it out a little bit but this song fucking rocks this is an early touchstone for me so like i said i was listening to mainly just you know heavy metal at this point and so this was an easy song for me to like to to make that transition because it's just that baseline is just that's epic and it just gets me every single time and the guitar just hits really hard and this one it still appeals to the high school heavy metal guy in that little guy inside of me uh, somewhere still i love this song as as, as a grown-up but as a you know what a 17 year old it's still like uh, yeah what do you think about this one i, I absolutely agree it's my 
definitely my favorite song on this album. I would I would actually use the term heavy metal hero, though, to describe what you are thinking when the song is going on. This would be a fantastic cover for Tenacious D to do at this point Ooh. because they can just blow it out of the water just like just like Perry Farrell did back then. Um, this is probably the most pure rock song on the album. I think this is this is doesn't have the, the carnival atmosphere to it. I mean, it, obviously it sells, it's marketing and all that. That's part of the whole James Addiction image, but this is just an awesome rock song. Yep, flat out. This is one that I know they had released as a single. I think this was the first single that they had released off this record. This was one, a song that got airplay on both Headbangers Ball and 120 Minutes. I saw it later, but it because I think there was some nudity in it, so it was censored and it wasn't played for a long time. And But this is the song they chose to lead off with. And of course, in 88, that makes total perfect sense because heavy metal was still kind of ruling the roost at this point. And this, he said, this is just, this is a flat out rocker and it's not super long. It's, uh, I don't remember how long the song is. I've been keeping the times in, but I set this one up a long time ago. So it's just a, a perfect slab of alternative metal, just straight up. And another one I can see influencing bands like Tool or some of those, some of those other groups who really lived in that moment. So that brings us on to track eight, Idiot's Rule. TJ, what do you got for me? I thought I'd heard that, that Flea was the guest bassist on that one, which kind of makes sense because it's got a little bit different bass line to it, a little bit more that that fusion jazz funk, whatever he had going on back then, fueled by copious amounts of drugs and alcohol. Love the song. I think it would be better if it wasn't right after Mountain Song because after Mountain Song, you're just like so cranked up on, again, the heavy metal version of everything that kind of like overshadows Idiot's Rule an awful lot. What are your thoughts? It's funny that you brought that up because I didn't, looking at my notes, I mentioned that, and I didn't really catch it before, that this does have a, a, a Red Hot Chili Peppers vibe to it. Obviously, the Red Hots were more of an established band by the time this came out, but not by much. I mean, I want to say that they were on their, what, maybe third or fourth record by the time this came out. So if Flea, which I don't, I've never heard, I've never heard that before, but it makes total sense. I can hear that influence on this one. It's tough to follow up an all-timer like Mountain Song, but I think this does an interesting thing with just that kind of bah, right, you know, right out of the bat. And it's got like horns on it, as far as I can tell. And I don't know if they're actually horns or if that's a guitar effect or if it's synthesizers or whatever, but it sounds like horns, you know, and I think it changes the energy while still being heavy that I, it would be tough to follow Mountain Song. And again, but maybe if you if you were to flip Jane Says an Idiot's Rule, like if you were to go for Mountain Song and then just bring it all the way down and then maybe lead it on out, that could also work. But I find that it, it's a good change of pace while not trying to compete with Mountain Song, while not trying to be like another metal song that it does, does go more to that Red Hot Chili Peppers vibe without bringing it down too much. So it's, I think almost anything is going to suffer by comparison because Mountain Song is just, it's just so great. Yeah, that's basically what I have for Idiot's Rule. So we're going to move on to track nine, Jane Says.
this is probably the most well-known song, definitely off this album, and maybe the most well-known song by the band. It's based on a real person. They didn't even bother to change anybody's name, you know, so that, you know, Sergio is a real dude. <laughs> These are all real people. This is one that I think suffers a little bit just because it it does get a little bit overplayed. This is something you, you can still occasionally hear on the radio or, you know, I remember hearing this in clubs a lot, you know, when we were when we were finally going out in, you know, 93 or 94, 95, even then, you know, that many years uh, later at 701 South, you could still hear Jane says on a Sunday night and something that just carried on. And it's a good tune and it brings the, you know, it's got steel drums. I don't particularly like steel drums, but I think they work in this song. It's an interesting song in just that it's kind of, it's a straight up story that you don't get a lot of on this album, you know? So it's not even just that the lyrics make sense. It's that it's, talking about a real person who apparently suffered a little bit because of this song and I think lost a job because of it or whatever. So it's, uh, it's, it's interesting in the history of it and their, you know, her connection to the band. And what are your thoughts? This is one of those things where everything and too much, too much is poison, no matter what it is. And great song when it came out, loved it. It was awesome. I was part of the, the crowd thinking this is the most, you know, great song, whatever, enlightenment or whatever on drug addiction. But it's been played so much that if I never hear it again, or if I never hear it, she talks to angels by the black crows again, which is pretty much the evil sister to this song uh, <laughs> out, of, out of Athens, Georgia, yeah. I could die a happy man. Cause it's just, at least James is a little bit, a little bit more up than she talks to angels, which is just fucking modeling. But um, yeah, never again. It's a, it's a great song, more power to them. But in my personal opinion, I could just stay away from this one because it was overplayed so much. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. And I hadn't listened to it in a really long time, at least not on purpose. And so I played it a couple of times in these last few days preparing for the show. But and it's because it had been a while since I had heard it. It's regained a little bit of that. I remembered why it was a good song. I still don't need to hear it, but I remembered why it was good. Uh, so we're going to go on to track 10. Thank you, boys. TJ, this was originally the final song on the on the vinyl, but we have one more song after this. But what are your thoughts here? Again, and I hate to hark, harken back to Pink Floyd and the whole concept album thing, but this really reminds me of some kind of like the end of the wall or whatever, where it's like, okay, we've got to make a concept album. This, we're not quite Ke- Queensryche. We're definitely not Pink Floyd, but we're going to wrap it up with something hip and cool that's going to that's gonna be the, the end all to this. And then they gave up and put in their album and their song on the album. Yeah, it's a... Interesting choice because uh, the last two days I have listened to this. I've listened to my record a couple of times and it's, it does have that moment where I, I kind of almost fall forward because I'm waiting for that next song and it's not coming and it just finishes up with this minute long. It's bare, I think it's one minute exactly. And it's just this silly jazzy little number. It's kind of funny and, you know, and you can tell the band is just having a goof, you know, and then I mean, the, the entire lyric to this is thank you boys. And it just do 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 do. It's almost like somebody. When, remember when they had those organ stores in the mall, and there'd be like a dude playing. You know, that's what this sounds like. And they're just they're having a goof. That finishes the vinyl, but on the CD, and what you see now is track eleven, "Pigs and Zen." Yes, so roses are red. I made up the rest. If you got some big fucking secret, then why don't you sing me some? 
There was, uh, this was originally on their live record, uh, their first record that had come out. So this is a, a studio version. So it's a different version from what you have there. And it does have a little bit of that bonus track or hidden track feel from what would become practically, <laughs> you know, the law that you had to have one. So it follows this Thank You Boys, which clearly is meant to finish the record. And it's this older song that they've re-recorded. But this song is fucking great. This is a great song. It's such a great way. And I would almost, because most of the time, hidden tracks were bullshit, but even or just calling it a bonus track and just go, you know, well, we're throw it on the end and it'll kind of mess up the balance of the record. It works in this spot because Thank You Boys does feel like just a little bit of a fake out at this point. It was on the track listing, so they didn't try to hide it. You know, there's just so much to love about this song. And it's another one. This one is probably just as a heavy, heavy of a song as the, you know, Mountain Song. It's got that breakdown part, which is so great. How many people took, you know, that part of, you know, I'm in the midst of a trauma, leave a message, I'll call you back on their answering machine back in the early 90s. You know, I'm sure I did it at least once. I'm sure everybody did that at least once. There's just, I, you know, that breakdown part is really what makes this song. But I think, yeah, it's hard to articulate just sometimes just how great this song really is. What are you thinking? I got to parrot what you just said. It's, it's amazing this song is now more of a spotlight in the middle of the album. I mean, this is, this could, if Mountain Song wasn't there, this would be, this would be the rocker track of the entire album. Hands down. Absolutely hands down. And I, and I kind of wonder if like, if there was a conversation between J, Dave Jorgen and, and Perry Farrell about, hey, should we, should we include this? Should we not include this? Where does it go? I mean, this is, I would think there'd be a producer fistfight over where this song is on the album because it, it holds its own so well compared to a lot of the other songs. I mean, I've already said like, you know, I got some, I got some issues with, like, with a couple of songs like Standing in the Shower. Man, that's not how to song. It sounds like they're just they're just riffing because they got a lot of money. Pigs and Zen is just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, again, that, that's a, that's a song that, that could be covered these days by numerous bands and still have the the flavor and the power and the feel that it had back in 1990. Oh yeah, why don't you sing me something? Yeah, such a, <laughs> <laughs> I love the way he sings that. All right, so that brings us on to our final thoughts. What are you thinking at the end here, TJ? And I think you have what I think now, where I fucking hate this album. And you have another one. So I was kind of back and forth with you whether I still love it or not. There, there are certain things I really like about it. I think Perry Farrell is a little bit too presumptuous these days. Being, but now, of course, I'm a 40-something-year-old adult, so I, I see through all the marketing. Still love the album for what it was at the time and what this album opened me up to. And Steve Pettit's guru of musicness opened all of us up to to the uh, – this is really a Steve Pettit hour. We know that. <laughs> Oh, opened me up to like just just the fact that there's all these incredible bands that paved the way for Tool and all these other bands that that, that that did so many more things were just so incredible. And if I'm rambling, it's because it just there's so much going on in this album. I mean, hell, we talked for 15 minutes about Ted just admit it and about all the nuances to that and what it was and what it exposed us to. So there's really no really short answer to this. I mean, I I love the album for what it was and I appreciate it for what it is now. Definitely, yeah. As I mentioned, this is one of those. The, the, this is the big three for me uh, as far as changing my musical landscape. And it's weird that I don't really consider the band itself to be much of a touchstone. Like this album means a lot to me. This band doesn't mean very much to me. And they really exist in that three act. Eh, maybe we'll give them a fourth act, but you know, so their first record was self-produced. Their first album was a live record. <laughs> uh, they get picked up by Warner brothers. This is the album that's supposed to set the world on fire and it doesn't. It does set the underground on fire. So, you know, the people in the know, this is one of those, 
the bands that they influenced, the music culture that they influenced is really important. And then their follow-up to this is gigantic, right? It just goes through the roof. I didn't quite like that album nearly as much. And I thought eh, maybe at the time it was just eh, something. And I listened to it again just recently. And it's still, there There are some great songs on that record. But as a record as a whole, I don't like the sound of it nearly as much as I like the sound of this one. And then they break up. That's their three three parts, you know. So they bring us Lollapalooza. They, they have the power to do Lollapalooza because of Ritual De Lo Habitual, which, you know, we've been caught stealing and stopping these massive singles and then songs like Three Days, which really the people who love this record probably love that song most, <laughs> it feels like. And then they break up just because Perry Farrell's a dick, essentially. And then they kind of get back together, but without Eric Avery. And that just doesn't mean anything to me. And I don't know that I've ever listened to, what is it, Kettle Whistle all the way through. I'm sure I've heard a song or two, but Avery was the was the soul of that band for me. And, you know, as great as a guitar player as Dave Navarro is and all that stuff, I just don't care. So this is kind of a one and done band, which is fine. You don't gotta you don't have to like everything. Uh, and I still I still love this one. I can see some of the flaws, I can see some of the cracks in the facade, but I've listened to it enough that I'm also able to paper over them <laughs> pretty easily. So that's uh, that's my my thoughts on that one. Ritual makes me laugh because I love Three Days. Eggs, their best song, absolutely their best song. But I can always see the punks in the Greek chorus in the background when they hear "Stop" or "Ben Caught Ceiling" saying, "You sold out to corporate rock to sell this album." And it's just that that's the thing I've always got is that nothing shocking was experimental, fun, interesting. But then they saw they could make a lot of money if they got on top forty music, and here we go. Now the thing is, I would push back on that just a little bit because it is my understanding that they essentially wrote every song for both records at the same time. Part of the reason why they broke up is there was nothing left in the tank because the band members just because, you know, Perry Farrell did that bullshit, like right before the tour, he wanted basically, what was it coming out to like 87% of the publishing. Remember that, yep. They're getting ready to go on tour. So it's, you know, I think Axl Rose pulled a similar thing with uh, Guns N' Roses as far as owning the name. These guys needed money. And they weren't going to get money if they broke up. So they agreed to it, but that the band was never the same and they never had that partnership after that. And so all of those songs, and granted, this is what a musician said to a magazine who then wrote about it and who knows what is the truth and how much bullshit is in any of that. But a lot of what I've been, what I've heard over the years is that they wrote all of those songs basically at one go. They chose those first 10 for the first record and the next one for the next record. So it really wasn't even a matter of, and of course there's, you know, there's rewrites and there's how you record it. And there's, you know, there's a lot that goes into that, but I don't think it was nearly as conscious of a choice as I think other people have made it out to be. And whether, and again, whether they're just covering up, <laughs> you know, what they wanted to do or some bullshit or whatever, I will never know. None of us will. But I think those are just, that was just a band that the, I don't think they sold out. I think the culture moved towards them. And we can see that within, you know, so that came out in 90, Nevermind comes out in 91. And then everything, and everything comes in, you know, so even like the first Smashing Pumpkins album had come out in what, 90 or 91. So Gish had come out then. And so there was a lot of bands that were playing with a lot of different energy that kind of felt as a whole, you know, so that that first Smashing Pumpkins record's not that different from this record yeah. that they have their differences. You can hear 
why somebody would like both of those records at the same time. Uh, and, you know, same thing with with Nevermind, same thing with the stuff that Soundgarden was doing at the time to keep it in the Pacific Northwest, at least for a bit. I think that everybody was ready to, to move on from heavy metal at that point. A lot of these bands were just mining different enough territory that was also similar enough to feel like a, a part of a whole. If you've made it this far, I would like to encourage everybody to, uh, I don't know, leave me a review, something, subscribe, whatever it is you're supposed to do so more people listen to my show. I'd like for more people to listen to it. That'd be nice. TJ, we've been trying to set this up for two years, <laughs> something this was supposed to be a part of season one. And then uh, I know some of your work stuff got in the way and then uh, I had other shows to do. So I'm uh, glad that we finally got you here at the tail end of season three. Thanks for joining me. It was uh, a lot of fun and uh, talk to you soon. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening. You can find all of our episodes at loveisrecord.com. Intro and outro music by The Ashes of Grissom. And thanks as always to original patron, Mark Evers.